Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun, here. Glad you could join us today. So I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided by the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. <clears throat> All right, so we're going to start off, uh, fortunately, with a few obituaries here. And uh, we start off with this one from the obituary obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, July 4th, 2023, Maureen Joy Bloom, September 20th, 1930 to July 2nd, 2023, author unknown. It is with a very heavy heart that we announce the passing of our beloved mother, Maureen Joy Bloom. She died peacefully on July 2nd, 2023, leaving behind a legacy of love, compassion, and unwavering dedication to her family and friends. Maureen, or Momo, to those who loved her, was the North Star in our lives. She instilled in us values of kindness, empathy, and selflessness. Maureen had an uncanny ability to make everyone around her feel cherished and loved, whether it was uh, through her comforting words, bun cakes, spaghetti sauce, or chicken soup. The love that Maureen had for her husband of 51 years, Seymour, her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren knew no bounds. She was our pillar of strength during hard times and our greatest cheerleader during good times. Maureen's genuine belief in our potential was a constant reminder that we were loved beyond, our, beyond measure. As we bid farewell to our beloved mother, we will carry with us the memories of her backyard parties, family holiday get-togethers, family vacations, bunt cake and jello molds, the sound of the washer and dryer going 24-7, wads of Kleenex found everywhere, her favorite Yiddish words, singing birthday calls, expired food in her pantry, multiple purchases of the same item, but most of all, her love. We know she and Seymour are dancing to fly with me to the moon right now. Maureen is survived by her five children, Susan, Hirsch, Mark A., Cindy, Wendy, Jack, Deanne, Paul, and Mark B., eight grandchildren and six grandchildren. Skin on my rink, Momo. We love you. That was Maureen Joy Bloom. September 20, 1930 to July 2, 2023, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, July 4th, 2023. All right, this next one is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, July 5th, 2023, Lawrence Terman, 1926 to 2023, He Made Films Happen, Oscar-nominated producer of The Graduate, also ta taught by Emily St. Martin. Lawrence Terman, the Oscar-nominated producer of The Graduate and American History X, has died. He was 96. Terman died Saturday at the Motion Picture and Television Fund's retirement community in Woodland Hills. His son, John Terman, confirmed his death to the Times. The veteran producer was born in Los Angeles on November 28, 1926 to Esther Goldberg and Jacob M. Terman. An L.A. boy through and through, according to the uh, since Peter and Andrew Terman on social media, he graduated from Los Angeles High School, served two years in the U.S. Navy, and then pursued a liberal arts degree at UCLA. After graduating from college, Terman worked for his father's fabric and upholstery shop in downtown L.A., which he said was not the line of work for him. He'd always had uh, stars in his eyes for theater and film. Terman broke into the business in 1955. He was flipping through the pages of Variety when he came across a job posting. The Kurt Frings Talent Agency 
which represented Elizabeth Taylor and Audrey Hepburn, was looking to hire an agent's assistant. He responded to the ad, writing that although he had no experience, he was full of energy and would work cheaply. He was quickly promoted to agent and represented the actors who starred in Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest before pivoting away from representation to become a producer. He leaped to producing by partnering with the seasoned producer and cut his teeth making a handful of films you've never heard of, his sons Peter and Andrew Terman said on Andrew's Instagram. Branching out on his own, he optioned a book that spoke to him and pulled in a stage director who was unrated in film and scraped together financing. That film was The Graduate. Terman's zest for the film industry carried him through a prolific career that spanned six decades. He produced more than 40 films, two of which he directed, and in 1991, he signed on to head USC's esteemed Peter Stark Producing Program, a post he held until he retired two years ago at 94. Among his best-known films are The Graduate, 1967, The Great White Hope, 1970, The Thing, 1982, The River Wild, 1994, and American History X, 1998. He also wrote a book, So You Want to Be a Producer, in which he detailed the tricks of the trade. He married my mother in 1958. After a rollicking time in a great rambling house in Brentwood, they divorced in the early 1970s, his sons wrote. Terman remarried twice, had another significant relationship, and flirted embarrassingly but successfully until the end. The brothers noted that uh, Terman ate a papaya, uh, papaya daily despite the fact that he did not like fruit because he believed it was healthy for but because he was healthy for him. He also swam laps to keep fit. I remember him in his 90s and yes, in his speedo, yikes, crossing the large bay in front of of Hotel Mauna Kea. Amazing. Terman credited his gray hair to producing Judy Garland's last film, 1963's I Could Go On Singing. In 1974, he and producer David Foster linked up and would remain partners for 20 years. In 1994, Foster told the Times, Larry is the opera and the symphony. Together, they produced A Drowning Pool, a whodunit starring Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Heroes, starring Henry Winkler, Mass Appeal, starring Jack Lemmon, The Mean Season, Running Scared with Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines, and Short Circuit, and its sequel. I was famous after The Graduate for about 20 minutes, German said in a, 20, a 2017 interview. It's nice to get a better table at the restaurant, but basically that doesn't motivate me. I never th even thought about fame. I was inundated with t uh, telephone calls and letters and scripts after the film's success. That's Hollywood. Fame is ephemeral and gives us life. I was asked to run a few studios, be head of production, but that lasted for nearly a year. Then the next flavor of the month producer would come through. A good producer is a creative person. The top people in the field are creative, but producers do not receive a lot of respect, he said. Go out in the street and stop a dozen strangers and ask what a writer does, what a director does, what an actor does, and you'll get a correct answer. If you ask what a producer does, you'll get a blank look. Nobody knows what we do. My definition is it's the person who causes the film to be made. Terman's son, John Terman, a screenwriter uh, known for Hulk and Ticking Clock, told the Times via email that while growing up, he was lucky enough to eavesdrop on his father's conversations with friends who were some of the greatest writers. 
William Goldman, Ernest Lemon, Lorenzo Semple Jr., Neil Simon, so many more. My father's career really tracked the golden age of Hollywood cinema, John Turman added. His prime was the 60s, 70s, and 80s. He was passionate about the art as well as the business and used to say <clears throat> that, all scripts, all be, that it all begins with a good script. He would have advised today's producers, as he did his USC students, to respect your collaborators. His passing marks the end of an era. For anybody who loves cinema, it's maybe worth reflecting on these values in his memory, as the industry he loved looked for a way forward. Tributes for Terman flooded social media after the news of his death. Former students, colleagues, and relatives shared anecdotes and accolades heralding of filming the, is the filmmaker for his passion and kindness. R.I.P. Larry Terman, you were special, and I will never forget how you drilled me, drilled in me two very near and dear lessons. One, personal life and family above movies, always. Two, it will take time. This business has, is more about the stomach you have than the talent, wrote former student Iram Parveen Belayle on Facebook. I worked with Larry Terman on American History X. He was a considerate, thoughtful, and wise producer, insightful on the process, Michael Mandeville wrote on Facebook. Always remembered for getting behind the, the graduate novel as a movie, his experience and his telling, telling of it uh, to me made me realize how one's belief overwhelms the obstacles. R.I.P. Larry Terman. David Kirkpatrick, who produced Rasputin and Big Night, also memorialized Terman on social media, writing, one of the kindest producers I've ever met. He put down his own $1,000 to option the novella The Graduate by Charles Webb. When I last spoke to him, he officially retired from USC. He told me he was just waiting for the horses and chariots of fire to take him away. I hope he had a good ride. He certainly had a good one on Earth. A service will be held at the MPTF Retirement Community at a later date. His family told the Times that in lieu of uh, flowers, Donations may be made to the Larry Terman Endowment Fund or the Peter Stark Program, USC School of Cinematic Arts. Terman is survived by sons John, Andrew, and Peter, four grandchildren, and two nieces, Catherine and Susanna. That was Lawrence Terman, 1926-2023, He Made Films Happen, by Emily St. Martin, from the calendar section, Wednesday, July 5th, 2023. All right, here is another one here from the obituaries section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, July 6, 2023. Sharon M. Gertz, March 20, March 30, that is, 1941 to July 4, 2023, author unknown. Age 82, beloved wife of Walter Gertz for 62 years, devoted mother of Michael Sharon Gertz, uh, Jamie Tony Ressler, and Scott Michelle Gertz. Proud and loving Nani to Oliver Ressler, Nick, Gabby Rose, wrestler, uh, Theo wrestler, Andrew Gertz, Ben Gertz, Sarah Gertz, Jordan Gertz, and Spencer Gertz. Her family was her world. Sharon was born in Chicago and lived there for many years before moving to Los Angeles. She was a successful residential real estate broker, both in Chicago and Los Angeles. She was a loving and cherished friend to many. She was an avid reader and loved to play mahjong and canasta with her, with her friends. Sharon's memory will continue to be a blessing for all who knew her, loved, and treasured her. Funeral, uh, funeral Thursday, July 6, 2023 at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
Hillside Memorial Park and Mortuary, 6001 West Sentinella Avenue, Los Angeles, 90045. Live stream large sanctuary service, uh, Hillside Memorial livecontrol.tv slash 4D66DCCF. 360 Gravesite Service, www.360xstream.com slash event slash gravesite dash service dash for dash Sharon S-H-A-R-Y-N dash Merle dash Gertz. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the Painted Turtle Camp, www.paintedturtle.org Museum of Tolerance, www.museumoftolerance.com, or Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center, uh, Illinois Holocaust Museum, www.ilholocaustmuseum.org. That was Sharon M. Gertz, March 30, 1941 to July 4, 2023, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, July 6, 2023. Okay, we have one more here from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, July 7th, 2023. John Michael Rosenfield, September 19, 1954 to July 2nd, 2023, author unknown. John was a third-generation Angelino. He was the first son of Elise and Robert Rosenfield. He grew up in a classic baby boomer neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley. But he soon adopted the bright, buoyant, counterculture lifestyle of the 60s. Sporting a long beard and floppy head of hair, he picked up his favorite uh, Nikon camera and began do uh, documenting the world around him. He went to study photography at San Jose State and became so good at his craft that he was hired as a photojournalist at the LA Times. The first time he laid his eyes on Martha McHugh, later Anne Rosenfield, he knew she was the love of his life. They married in 1976, bought a home in Burbank, and started a family with the arrival of Matthew in 1980 and Andrew in 1982. Because of his close relationship with his father, Bob, and his grandmother, grandfather, Milton, he decided to join the long-running family sales business in the early 80s. He was a supremely generous and caring family man who coached soccer with his son and constantly entertained his three grandchildren with funny faces and goofy nicknames. Kindness isn't often used as a measure of a life well lived. Nevertheless, sweetness and and sincerity stand as the hallmark of John's life. It enriched the people he knew and endured him to the people he loved. John's gentle, cheerful demeanor will always be deep within us, and he will forever be missed. John is survived by his wife Anne, sons Matthew, Holly, Andrew, Elise, and uh, father Bob, brothers Tom, Ruth, and Jim, Heather, and grandchildren Addison, Sebastian, and Jamie. A service will be held at Mount Sinai Memorial Park on Friday, July 7 at 2 p.m. It was John Michael Rosenfield, September 19, 1954 to July 2, 2023, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, July 7, 2023. All right, we got a couple of Israel stories here, starting with this one from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, July 4, 2023. Hundreds of Israeli troops pound militant strongholds. The crackdown kills eight Palestinians and wounds dozens in a West Bank camp. The death toll may grow. By Nasser, Nasser and Joseph Fetterman. Janine, West Bank. Israel on Monday launched its most intense military operation in the occupied West Bank in nearly two decades, carrying out a series of drone strikes 
and sending hundreds of troops on an open-ended mission into a militant stronghold. At least eight Palestinians were killed and dozens wounded. The crackdown was reminiscent of Israeli military tactics during the Second Palestinian Uprising in the early 2000s and came at a time of growing domestic pressure for a tough response to recent attacks on the Israelis, Israeli settlers, including a shooting last month that killed four Israelis. The operation took place in the Janine refugee camp, an area in the northern West Bank that has long been known as a bastion of armed struggle. The fighting, which began shortly after midnight, continued past nightfall. Throughout the day, black smoke rose from the crowded streets of the camp, a densely populated neighborhood that is home to some 14,000 people, while exchanges of fire rang out and drones could be heard buzzing overhead. Military bulldozers plowed through narrow streets, damaging buildings as they cleared the way for Israeli forces. There are bulldozers destroying the streets, snipers are inside and on the roofs of houses, drones are hitting houses, and Palestinians are killed in the streets, said Jamal Huwell, a political activist in the camp, predicting the operation would fail. The military blocked traffic in and out of Janine, and the city resembled a ghost town. Streets were empty as armored Israeli vehicles patrolled. Piles of burning tires and garbage containers littered traffic circles. Power and water supplies were knocked out in the camp. Palestinian youths occasionally threw stones at army vehicles before darting away. With the sound of shooting and explosions in the background, at least 10 ambulances rushed to the overwhelmed local hospital as relatives checked to see if loved ones were inside. One ambulance arrived with a bullet hole in front. The Palestinians and three Arab countries with normalized ties with Egypt, Jordan, Egypt, with Israel, Jordan, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates condemned the incursion, as did the 57-nation Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Late Monday, the Palestinian leadership in the West Bank held an emergency meeting and said it was halting its already limited contacts with Israel. Leaders uh, said a freeze on security coordination would remain in place and they vowed to step up activity against Israel in the United Nations and international bodies. They also plan to minimize contacts with the United States. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was unswayed. In recent months, Janine has turned into a safe haven for terrorism. We are putting an end to this, he said. Netanyahu said the troops were destroying militant command centers and confiscating weapons, supplies, and factories. He claimed the operation was taking place with minimum harm to civilians. Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, the chief military spokesman, said there were a total of about 10 airstrikes, most of them aimed at keeping gunmen away from ground troops. He accused militants of operating next to a United Nations building and storing weapons inside a mosque. He said Israel launched the operation because some uh, 50 attacks over the last year had emanated from Janine. Neither the Prime Minister nor Hagari gave any indication when the operation would end. Lynn Hastings, a United Nations humanitarian coordinator in the Palestinian area, said on Twitter that she was alarmed by the scale of the Israeli forces operation and noted the airstrikes in a densely populated refugee camp. She said the UN was mobilizing humanitarian aid. UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, said many camp residents were in need of food, drinking water, and milk powder. The Palestinian Health Ministry said at least eight Palestinians were killed 
and 50 people were wounded, 10 crit critically. The dead were identified as young men and Palestinian youths, including a 16-year-old boy and two 17-year-olds. In a separate incident, a 21-year-old Palestinian was killed by Israeli fire near the West Bank city of Ramallah, the ministry said. The Janine camp and an adjacent town of the same name have been a flashpoint as Israeli-Palestinian violence has escalated since spring of last year. Israel says it has stepped up activity because the Palestinian Authority is too weak to maintain quiet. It also accuses its archenemy Iran of funding militant groups involved in the fighting. Palestinian re Palestinians reject such claims, saying the violence is a natural response to 56 years of occupation, including stepped-up settlement construction by Israel's government and increased violence by Jewish settlers. Janine was a major friction point in the last Palestinian uprising. In 2002, days after a Palestinian suicide bombing during a large Passover gathering killed 30 people, Israeli troops launched a massive operation in the Janine camp. For eight days and nights, they found militants street by street using armored bulldozers to destroy rows of homes, many of which had been booby-trapped. Monday's raid came two weeks after another violent confrontation in Janine that included the shooting death of a 15-year-old girl and after the military said a rocket was fired from the area last week. But there also may have been a political considerations at play. Leading members of Netanyahu's far-right government, which is dominated by West Bank settlers and their supporters, have called for a broad military response to the ongoing violence, particularly after the June 20 shooting that killed four people in the Jewish settlement of Eli. Proud of our heroes on all fronts, and this morning, especially our soldiers operating in Janine, tweeted National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Givur, an ultra-nationalist, were recently called for Israel to kill thousands of militants if necessary, praying for their success. Israeli military experts said they expected the operation to wrap up within a day or two. Prolonged violence and heavy casualties would risk attracting increased international criticism and drawing militants from the Gaza Strip or even Lebanon into the fighting. That was hundreds of Israeli troops pound militant stronghold by Nasser, Nasir and Joseph Fetterman. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, July 4th, 2023. Nasser and Fetterman write for the Associated Press. All right, here is a follow-up story from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, July 5th, 2023. Israeli forces began pulling out from the Jenin camp. Move comes after a Palestinian crashes his car into a crowd and stabs eight in Tel Aviv before he is killed by Mahdi Mohammed. Jenin West Bank. The Israeli military began withdrawing troops from a militant stronghold in the occupied West Bank late Tuesday, security officials said, winding down an intense two-day operation that killed at least 12 Palestinians, confiscated hundreds of weapons, and left a wide swath of damage in its wake. But heavy fighting between Israeli troops and Palestinian militants continued in parts of the Janin refugee camp, delaying the planned pullout. The development came hours after a Hamas militant rammed his car into a crowded Tel Aviv bus stop and began stabbing people, wounding eight, including a pregnant woman who reportedly lost her baby. The attacker was killed by an armed bystander. Hamas said the attack was revenge for the Israeli offensive. Visiting a military post outside Jenin, 
Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu indicated the operation, one of the most intense in the territory in nearly two decades, was nearing its end. But he vowed to carry out similar operations in the future. At this moment, we are completing the mission, and I can say that our extensive operation in Janine is not a one-off, a one he said. The Israeli military said it carried out airstrike, carried out an airstrike late Tuesday targeting a militant cell located in a cemetery. It said the gunmen threatened forces moving out of the camp. There was no immediate word on casualties. Israeli and Palestinian officials also reported the fi uh, also reported fighting near a hospital in Janine late Tuesday. An Associated Press reporter on the ground could hear explosions and the sound of gunfire. Palestinian hospital officials told the official Wafa news agency that the three civilians that three civilians were hit by Israeli fire. An Israeli security official confirmed that troops had begun to leave, but said the withdrawal was complicated by the fighting. He spoke on condition of anonymity pending a formal announcement. Israel struck the camp known as a bastion of Palestinian militants early Monday in an operation that it said was aimed at destroying and confiscating weapons. Palestinian health officials said 12 people had been killed and dozens wounded. Big military bulldozers tore through heavy air alleyways, causing heavy damage to roads and buildings, and thousands of residents fled the camp. People said electricity and water were knocked out. The army says the bulldozers were necessary because roads were booby-trapped with explosives. The military said it had confiscated thousands of weapons, bomb-making materials, and caches of money. Weapons were found in militant hideouts and civilian areas, in one, of, in one, in one case beneath a mosque, the military said. The large-scale raid comes amid a more than year-long spike in violence that has created a challenge from Netanyahu's far-right government which is dominated by ultranationalists who have called for a tougher action against Palestinian militants only to see the fight, fighting worsen. More than 140 Palestinians have been killed this year in the West Bank, and Palestinian attacks targeting Israelis have claimed at least 25 lives, including a shooting last month that killed four settlers. The sustained operation has prompted warnings from humanitarian groups of a deteriorating situation. Doctors Without Borders accused the army of firing tear gas into a hospital, filling the emergency room with smoke, and forcing emergency patients to be treated on a main hall. The, the Office of the United Nations Human Rights Chief said the scale of the operation raises a host of serious issues with respect to international human rights norms and standards, including protecting and respecting the right to life. With airstrikes and a large presence of ground troops, the raid bore hallmarks of Israeli tactics during the Second Palestinian Uprising in the early 2000s. But there are also differences. It's more limited in scope with Israeli military operations focused on several strongholds of Palestinian militants. Israeli National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Givir, a hardline settler leader, rushed to the scene of Tuesday's attack in Tel Aviv. We knew that our terror would raise its head, Ben-Givir said. He praised, we knew that terror would raise its head, Ben Givar said. He praised the person who killed the attacker and called for arming more citizens as he was heckled by an angry onlooker. The attacker was identified as a 20-year-old Palestinian man from the southern West Bank city of Hebron. 
Hamas, the Islamic militant group that rules the Gaza Strip, praised him as a martyr fighter and called the ramming heroic and revenge for the military operation in Jenin. Islamic Jihad, a militant group of the larger presence in Jenin, also praised the assault. It was not immediately clear whether the man was dispatched by Hamas or acting on his own. In Jenin, rubble littered the streets, and columns of black smoke periodically rose above the skyline over the camp, which has been a wellspring of Israeli-Palestinian violence for years. Janine Mayor Nedal Obidi said about 4,000 Palestinians, nearly one-third of the camp, had fled to stay with relatives or in shelters. Kefa Jayastiyasa, a camp resident, says soldiers forcibly entered her home and locked the family inside. They took the young men of my family to the upper floor, and they left the women and children trapped in the apartment at the first floor, she said. She claimed soldiers would not let her take let her take food to the children and blocked an, and blocked an ambulance crew from entering her home when she yelled for help before eventually allowing the family passage to a hospital. Across the West Bank, Palestinians observed a general strike to protest the Israeli raid. The Palestinian Health Ministry said Tuesday that the two-day death toll rose to 12. The Israeli military has claimed at least 10 were militants but did not provide details. There was no immediate information on the latest deaths. The Palestinian self-ruled government in the West Bank and three Arab countries with normalized ties with Israel, Jordan, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates have condemned Israel's incursion, as did Saudi Arabia and the 57-member Organization of Islamic Operation. Israel has been carrying out near-daily raids in the West Bank in response to a series of deadly Palestinian attacks in early 2022. It says the raids are meant to crack down on Palestinian militants and thwart attacks. The Palestinians say such uh, violence is the inevitable result of 56 years of occupation and the absence of any political process with Israel. They also point to increased West Bank settlement construction and violence by extremist settlers. Israel says most of those killed have been militants, but stone-throwing youths protesting the incursions and people uninvolved in confrontations have also died. Israel captured the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip in the 1967 Middle East War. The Palestinians seek those territories for a future independent state. That was Israeli forces began pulling out from Jenin camp by Mahdi Mohammed from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, July 5th, 2023. Mohammed writes for the Associated Press. All right, we have one last story on this particular subject. This is from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, July 7th, 2023. UN chief denounces Israel over acts of terror in Janine attack from the Associated Press. United Nations, in a rare condemnation of Israel, the United Nations chief on Thursday denounced the country's excessive use of force in its largest military operation in two decades, targeting a refugee camp in the West Bank. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, clearly angered, said Israel's attack on the Janine refugee camp had wounded more than 100 civilians, forced thousands to flee, damaged schools and hospitals, and disrupted water and electricity works. He also criticized Israel for preventing the injured from getting medical care and keeping humanitarian workers from reaching everyone in need. 
I strongly condemn all acts of violence against civilians, including acts of terror, he told reporters. As whether this condemnation applied to Israel, Gutierrez replied, it applies to all use of excessive force, and obviously in this situation, there is an excessive force used by Israeli forces. Israel's two-day offensive, which it said was to crack down on militants, also killed 12 Palestinians and destroyed the camp's narrow roads and alleyways. One Israeli soldier was also killed. The UN chief called on Israel to abide by its obligations under international law and to exercise restraint and use only proportional force. The use of airstrikes is inconsistent with the conduct of law enforcement operations, he said. Guterres reminded Israel that as the occupying power, it has a responsibility to ensure that the civilian population is protected against all acts of violence. His condemnation followed a statement by three independent UN human rights experts on Wednesday uh, that said the Israeli airstrike and ground actions were egregious violations of international law and standards on the use of uh, force and may, con may constitute a war crime. The experts who spoke who specialize in human rights in the Palestinian territory, the rights of the internally displaced and violence against women and girls called for Israel to be held accountable for its illegal occupation and its violence to perpetrate it. The Israeli army claimed to have inflicted heavy damage on militant groups on the attack on the camp, which ended Wednesday. Before Israel's withdrawal, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed to order more such operations if needed. The attack followed more than a year of increased Israeli-Palestinian violence. The Janin camp and an adjacent town of the same name have been a hotspot since the violence began escalating in spring 2022. The offensive further weakened the Palestinian Authority, Israel's erstwhile partner in fighting militants. The authority already had little control in the camp. Guterres said he understood that Israel had legitimate security concerns, but added that escalation is not the answer. It simply bolsters radicalization and leads to a deepening cycle of violence and bloodshed. He emphasized that restoring the hope of the Palestinian people in a meaningful political process leading to a two-state solution and the end of the occup occupation is an essential contribution by Israel and its own security. Israel captured the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip in the 1967 Middle East War. The Palestinians have sought, to, sought those territories for an independent state, a goal supported by the UN and many countries around the world. That was UN chief denounces Israel over attacks of terror in Janine attack. From the Associated Press, out of the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, July 7, 2023. Okay, let's go to... Uh, go, uh, go to another place on the international scale from the world section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, July 8, 2023, in China, Yellen stresses economic bonds by Joe McDonald. Beijing. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen and Chinese Premier Li Kuang expressed hopes Friday for better communication as Yellen appeared to uh, Beijing not to let frustration over U.S. curbs on technology exports disrupt economic cooperation. Both governments used positive terms to describe Yellen's visit to China, China's capital, which was aimed 
approving at improving strained relations and stressed the importance of U.S.-China uh, economic ties. Yellen and Lee announced no new plans for more high-level meetings to revive contacts that disputes over technology uh, security and other irritants uh, have, uh, have disrupted. Yet, Yellen in, is the latest of several senior U.S. officials traveling to Beijing to encourage Chinese leaders to revive interactions between the governments of the world's two largest economies. Treasury officials said earlier she wouldn't meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping and no breakthroughs had been expected. In a one-hour meeting with China's number two leader, Yellen and Washington, said Washington and Beijing have a duty to cooperate on issues that affect the world. She appealed for regular channels of communication and, more pointedly, pointedly for healthy economic competition, a reference to complaints that China was stepping up subsidies and market barriers to protect its companies. At the same time, Yellen defended targeted actions, a reference to curbs on Chinese access to advanced processor chips and other technology, saying they were needed to protect national security. You may disagree, the Treasury chief said, but we should not allow any disagreement to lead to misunderstandings that needlessly worsen our bilateral economic and financial relationships. Lee said he hoped the U.S. would meet China halfway, but gave no indication of possible changes to Chinese trade and other policies that have irked Washington. China's, China's development is an opportunity rather than a challenge to the United States and a benefit rather than a risk, Lee said, according to a statement from the country's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The two sides should strengthen communication and seek consensus on important issues in the bilateral economic field through candid, in-depth, and pragmatic exchanges. The Chinese Finance Ministry called Yellen's visit a concrete measure toward carrying out an agreement by Xi and President Biden during a meeting in November to improve relations. The ministry called on Washington to make the next move. We hope the United, Nation, United States will take concrete actions to create a favorable environment for the healthy development of economic and trade relations, a ministry statement said. Yun Sun, a senior fellow at the Washington-based Stimson Center, said any major pronouncements on economic agreements would more likely come out of meetings between the nation's respective presidents rather than finance ministers. I see Yellen's meeting as a positive development and see it as a resumption of the senior level exchange, she said. The meetings also built the ground for the potential of having something concrete to be agreed upon between world leaders and the September Group of 20 Summit in India or the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco in November, she said. U.S. curbs on Chinese access to technology threaten to delay or derail the ruling Communist Party's efforts to develop telecoms, artificial intelligence, and other technologies. Xi accused Washington in March of trying to hamper China's development. Beijing has been slow to retaliate, possibly to avoid disrupting its own, its own tech industry. But this week, the government announced unspecified controls on exports of gallium and germanium metals used in making semiconductors and, so and solar panels. That announcement jolted South Korea and other countries that import from China. Earlier Friday, Yellen criticized China's treatment of U.S. companies during a meeting with U.S. business people. The U.S. 
and other foreign companies are uneasy about their status in China following raids on consulting firms, the expansion of a national security law, and calls by Z and other officials for greater self-sufficiency. I am communicating the concerns that I've heard from uh, the U.S. business community, including China's use of non-market tools like expanding subsidies for its state-owned enterprises and domestic firms and barriers to market access for foreign films, foreign firms, Yellen said, according to a transcript released by her department. Yellen rejected suggestions that Washington is trying to decouple the U.S. economy from China's. Business people have warned that the world's two biggest economies might split into separate markets with incompatible products as the U.S. and China tighten trade controls and tell companies to reduce reliance on the other country. They say that will hurt economic growth and innovation. I have made clear that the United States does not seek a wholesale separation of our economies, Yellen said. A decoupling of the world's two largest economies would be destabilizing for the global economy. Yellen defended U.S. export curbs and rejected Chinese accusations that Washington uses them for economic advantage. Also Friday, Yellen met with the outgoing governor of China's central bank, Yi Gang, and former Vice President Liu He, previously her counterpart in finance talks, according to the Treasury. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken met Xi last month in the highest-level U.S. visit to Beijing in five years. The two agreed to stabilize relations but failed to agree on improving communications between their, their militaries. The latest flare-up came after Biden referred to Xi as a dictator. The Chinese government protested, but Biden said his blunt statements are just not something I'm going to change very much. Ties became especially testy after a Chinese surveillance balloon flew over the U.S. in February and was subsequently shot down. Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry, is scheduled to visit China next week. China and the U.S. are the world's number one and number two emitters of climate-changing carbon, making whatever steps they take critical. In China, Yellen stresses, that was in China, Yellen stresses economic bonds by Joe McDonald from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, July 8, 2023. McDonald writes for the Associated Press. All right, one more world story here from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, July 5th, 2023. On a mission to return heirlooms Nazis stole, a German museum curator is determined to locate descendants of Jewish owners of personal silver items by Kirsten Grieshaber. Munich, Germany. Matthias Winnegar put on a pair of white cloth gloves and carefully lifted a tarnished silver candle holder looking for a yellow sticker on the bottom of it. The candlestick is one of, uh, one of 111 silver objects at the Bavarian National Museum that the Nazis stole from Jews during the Third Reich in 1939. That's when they ordered all German Jews to bring their personal silver objects to pawn shops across the Reich one of many laws created to humiliate, punish, and exclude Jews. What started with anti-Jewish discrimination and persecution in 1933, after the Nazis were voted to power in Germany, led to the slaughter of 6 million European Jews and others in the Holocaust before World War II, ended with Germany's surrender in 1945. Winnegar, who is a curator at the Munich Museum and oversees its restitution efforts, 
has made it his mission to return as many of the silver objects as possible to the descendants of the original owners. These silver objects handed in at the pawn shops are often the only material things that remain from ex an existence wiped out in the Holocaust, Wernicke said in a recent interview at the museum's workshop where he displayed some silver items that have yet to be returned. Therefore, it's really important to try to find the families and give back the objects to them, he added. Thousands of the pieces taken from the Jews were melted into about 135 tons of silver and used to help Germany's war efforts. But several museums ended up with hundreds of silver pieces, such as candlesticks used to light candles on the eve of Shabbat, kiddush cups to bless the wine, silver spoons, and cake servers. Some items were returned to Holocaust survivors in the 50s and 60s if they came forward and actively tried to retrieve their stolen possessions. But many former owners per, uh, perished in the Holocaust, or if they managed to flee from the Nazis, ended up in far-flung corners of the globe. Two-thirds of the last owners did not survive the Shoah, Winnegar said, using the Hebrew term for the Holocaust. Despite these odds, and with a combination of thorough detective work, dedication, and deep knowledge of history, Winnegar has so far managed to return about 50 objects to the family members and relatives of the original owners. He is convinced that he may be able to return almost all remaining objects by the end of this year. First, he searches for the identity of the original owners. The little yellow paper stickers on some of the pieces often helped his efforts. They were put on the, on the objects by the pawn shops, a testament to Germans' obsessive bureaucracy. The numbers on the stickers are also listed on more than 80-year-old documents naming the Jews who had, give a, had to give away their silver, sometimes beloved heirlooms, that had been passed down in families for many generations. Once Winnegar discovers the names of the original owners, he starts looking up Jewish obituary and ge genealogy databases in hopes that direct descendants or more dis uh, distant relatives may have posted their names online. And so you get from one generation to the next generation, and you end up with the telephone books, uh, with LinkedIn, with Facebook, with Instagram, or email addresses that correspond to a member of the younger generation of the family, the researcher explained. In most of the cases, Winnegar said he gets lucky and is able to track down the right relatives. The majority of descendants live in the United States and Israel, but the museum has already returned or is in possession of, or in the process of, also returning silver pieces to their original owner's relatives in France, the United Kingdom, Australia, and Mexico. Winnegar makes a point of personally delivering the pieces to the families. He traveled to the U.S. earlier this year and recently returned 18 pieces to families in Israel. There, Winnegar met up with Hila Gutman, 53, and her father Benjamin Gutman, 86, at his home in Kifar Shemario, north of Tel Aviv, and gave them a small silver cup. Winnegar had managed to track down the family with the help of the tracing service of Magan David Adom, Israel's version of the International Committee of the Red Cross. The cup was probably used for Kiddush to bless the wine on the eve of Shabbat, but nobody knows for sure because the original owners, Bavarian cattle dealer, Solomon Gutman and his wife Carolina, who were the grandparents of Benjamin, were killed by the Nazis in the Treblinka extermination camp. 
It was a mixed feeling for us to give back the cup, Hila Gutman uh, said, because you understand it's the only thing that's left of them. While the grandparents of Benjamin Gutman were murdered in the Holocaust, their son Max, Benjamin's father, survived because he fled to the British-mandated territory of Palestine in what is now Israel. Despite the pain triggered by the loss and return of the silver cup, the Gutmans said they're happy to have it back and plan to use it in a ceremony with all their other relatives on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, in September. As for Winnegar, the bearer of the cup, the Gutmans have nothing but praise for him and his work. He's really dedicated to what Hila Gutman said. He treats these little objects with so much care, like they are holy. That was on a mission to return heirlooms Nazi stole by Kirsten Greishaber from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, July 5th, 2023. Greishaber writes for the Associated Press. Okay, let's go on to some entertainment news. We go on to uh, the Sunday section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, July 2nd, 2023. This is called Jaron Lewison Thinks About the Perfect Sunday. S-U-N-D-A-E, and Korean barbecue. The actor's tour of L.A. involves eating like never has he ever before by Julia Carmel. Many know Jaron Lewison as the nerdy high schooler Ben, whose relationship with classmate Debbie went from frenemies to lovers on Netflix's Never Have I Ever. But off-screen, Lewison, who was a recent graduate of USC, who loves to bake, play video games, hit the gym, eat like a king, and wander around nostalgic places. Sometimes you become slightly desensitized to how magical L.A. can feel, said Lewison, who still lives near the USC campus after finishing another a school after finishing school a year early. With Never Have I Ever's fourth and final season having dropped June 8, Lewison takes us through some of the spots he's enjoyed with his friends and shows the cast and crew. Here is how he'd spend a perfect Sunday in L.A. 9.30 a.m., pop out of bed. My alarm is at 9.30 a.m. every day. My family says we have the Lewison curse, which means you just never sleep. I'm also the type of person where my alarm goes off and I'm out of bed 30 seconds later brushing my teeth. 9.45 a.m., head to the gym. I grab a protein bar and walk to the USC Lion Recreation Center, which is where I work out. I'm about to move, but for the last four years, my entire time being out in L.A., I've lived and gone to school at USC. I graduated a year ago, but I'm still sort of living the college life. All my friends are still here, and a lot of them are from out of state. So I was like, you know what? I'll spend one more year with my friends. 12 p.m., snack time. Then I'll come home, shower, and I'll make the best protein shake of all time. I use this protein powder that's chocolate-flavored. The brand is Dimatize. I get two scoops of peanut butter in there, and then some oat milk. I'm telling you, it tastes like a chocolate milkshake. Then, in a perfect world, I'm going to make some Oreo cookie brownie boards to enjoy after dinner. I'm a big baker. I have a massive sweet tooth. 1 p.m. Get lunch at the original farmer's market. I'm going to the farmer's market at the Grove. When I was a kid, I would come to L.A. for pilot season, and I would eat at the farmer's market with my mom and then drive to an audition. Lunch is going to be with my roommates, who are my best friends. I might have a corned beef sandwich at one of the deli spots. I might do the kebab stand. I might do the fried chicken place. I like to eat, so it could be that I could go get a pickle from the 
little pickle guy, little pickle guy stand, or at least a sample. I'd probably get a fresh squeezed lemonade. I would like to say I can control myself, but I probably can't. 2 p.m. Pick out a book. Then I'm probably walking around Barnes and Noble. I was never a reader growing up, but after college, I was like, I want to read. I really like realistic fiction or sci-fi. Growing up, Ender's Game was like the only thing I ever read besides Percy Jackson and like The Hunger Games and Diver Divergent, which was whatever was popular. But recently, I read all of Sally Rooney's books, and I really like those. I'm a huge fan of normal people. Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Meskel, their performances in Daisy Jones and the Six are mind-boggling to me, and that's one of my favorite limited series. So right now, I'm reading Daisy Jones and the Six. If it get, I guess if it gets adapted into a TV show, I'm like, oh, I should do it. 2.30 p.m. Wander around a museum. Might be the Broad. It might be the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. But I've been, I've been wanting to go to the Peterson Automotive Museum, so I'm probably going to go there with my friends. I have a dream of owning a Raven Black Thunderbird, like a 1957 with uh, chrome red interior, and it's a convertible. It's a very silly vision, but in my mind, when I've made it, I've got that car. I'm in a black suit with a black dress shirt with Ray-Ban sunglasses. The top is down, and I'm driving down PCH2. The devil wears a suit and tie. So I think that the Peterson Automotive Museum might be the closest I ever get to sitting in that car and driving on PCH while that song plays. But we'll see. You never know. 4.30 p.m. Get an afternoon cone. My family has a tradition. We used to do 3 o'clock ice cream on vacations. I'm going to McDonald's fine ice creams and as dark chocolate as it can get. That's what I want. My family's in Dallas, but I'll send them a picture in our family group chat. 5 p.m. Head home to play Rocket League. My little group of seven will probably have a couple of drinks, and we like to play Rocket League. That's a big one in my house. We do some tournaments. My Rocket League partner, Dan, is one of my best friends. We've definitely figured out how to get some chemistry going on the Rocket League field. 7.15 p.m. Eat as much meat as humanly possible. We're going to K-Town. I love Korean barbecue. I'm probably eating my face off. We're going to have some beer. We're going to have all the meat, maybe some of the fixins, but definitely a lot of meat. I'll probably be the grill master. The first Korean barbecue joint that I was ever exposed to was Kaku, which is really solid. But there are a couple of gyms in K-Town. Every time I go, I try a new place. Quarters Korean barbecue is really, really good. I actually went there with the Never Have I Ever crew and cast. 9.30 p.m. Choose an adventure. There are a few options now. We could do karaoke in K-Town. I'm a Texas boy. I'm not a singer. But I think I can sing a country song and be all right. I think it's going to be Wagon Wheel by Darius Rucker. One time, my roommate and I went for a karaoke and sang My Way by Frank Sinatra, and I do think that brought the house down. Or perhaps an escape room. Or we're going back to my house, and it's a game night. My house is a Settlers of Catan uh, house. We actually have a chalkboard wall, and we have a winner's standings column that gets updated after every game. 12 a.m., grab a midnight snack at Cantor's. At this point, it might be time to go to Cantor's Deli. I'm a huge, I'm a huge Jewish deli person, 
and Cantor's is open 24 hours, so I'm going to milk the hell out of that. That was Jaron Lewis Thinks About the Perfect Sunday and Korean Barbecue by Julia Carmel from the Sunday section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, July 2nd, 2023. In Sunday Fun Day, LA people give us a play-by-play of their ideal Sunday around town. Find ideas and inspiration on where to go, what to eat, and how to enjoy life on the weekends. Okay, now we go to uh, this one, a book review from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, July 6, 2023. The One vs. The Many. The majority, clearly inspired by RBG, lays bare the complexities of the Supreme Court by Bethan Patrick. Last week uh, marked an irre- irrevocable turning point for the U.S. Supreme Court and our nation. In a flurry of late 6-3 decisions, the court's conservative majority eliminated the right to affirmative action in college admissions, allowed businesses to discriminate against LGBTQ people, and struck down President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Just a year after the federal right to abortion was overturned, these rulings also followed news that two justices had accepted lavish gifts from billionaires with businesses before the court. With business before the court. This turn of events is even sharper and to many more painful when you consider how recently it felt like the Supreme Court, albeit by slim margins, was expanding the rights of Americans, thanks in part to a beloved jurist whose pioneering biography paralleled the path breaking cases she decided. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, idolized as the notorious RBG, died less than three years ago. But our legend lives on, most recently in Elizabeth Silver's new, law, new novel, The Majority. And R, the, its RBG-esque uh, protagonist, Sylvia Olin Bernstein, 83, considers her life as she looks back to her decades on the highest court. Half of the United States is waiting for me to die, she writes in a note. The other half stand by, candles in hand praying for me to hang on. Before she became one of the nine, Justice Bernstein was one of another famous no uh, net, the first group of women admitted to Harvard Law School in the 1950s. The tension between her membership in those two groups will determine much of her life's progress. Sylvia, Sylvie to her nearest and dearest, has a strong liberal feminist bent which she slowly realizes in the, the stealthily devastating story puts her at odds with much of her country and even her family. Due to an early mistake leading to a short jail stay for, contemporary, for contempt of court, Sylvie becomes known as the contemptuous SOB. This winking reference notwithstanding, the author departs liberally from Ginsburg's well-known and oft-dramatized biography. The differences start early and pile up quickly. Sylvie, whose parents run a small Brooklyn deli, grows up with a cousin, Mariana. Mariana's ideas about law and society have much to do with her own parents, judges in Warsaw, who died after deportation concentration camps. Like Ginsburg, Sylvie graduates from Harvard Law and marries a classmate, but she will have a different kind of life and family. Her only child, Aviva, will also play an important role in Sylvie's choices. The word choices has much significance in the majority and much work to do. Sylvie is constantly pulled between what is best for the many and what is best for the individual, beginning with herself. Before, both before and after Aviva's birth, Sylvie also struggled with the way society pits the one against the many. During the early, early uh, case, 
that leads to the contempt charge, she is an intern in the Boston Public Defender Office. A woman named Amy McCartney refuses to testify against her husband who raped and beat her nearly to death. Sylvie's feminist indignation feeds her silence in court, enraging the judge in that case. And so she learns to close off her righteous anger, and it costs her. Sylvie fails to pro process the trauma of her closest friend and roommate, Linda, who leaves law school to become a journalist and to coin the SOB nickname. Linda is black and works to impress on Sylvie and the unique societal burden she bears to little avail. Other failings are laid bare. The family she sometimes neglects while advancing her career, a longtime collaboration with a law school dean whose feminism turns out to be lip service. Silver's groundbreaking jurist is less an icon than a, conf a conflicted hu uh, human human being who mistakes fuel for, uh, whose mistakes fuel her successes, and vice versa. The conflict in Sylvie's life all stem from a concept, concept captured in Silver's deceptively simple title. On one level, the majority refers to the fact that women outnumber men in the United States. It also pertains to majority rule and the questions of whether judicial decisions can or should always align and change with popular sentiment. And it reflects the proportion of justices who, whose arguments must prevail. In one of the novel's best scenes, Sylvie learns the importance of dissenting opinion. The way those published statements from the minority on the court can later become arguments that change future court decisions. This is why our system mandates the dissemination of dissents even when they feel out of step with the majority. No writ is final. For Sylvie, this is a good thing because there are decisions in her life she'd like to reverse. One, all too common, involves a rift with her daughter. When it threatens to become irreconcilable, Mariana steps in, as she did during Aviva's infancy, to give the younger woman space and time for healing a process never truly appreciated. Having launched a career in her 40s as a sought-after artist, Mariana ultimately finds a way to help the coolly logical Sylvie answer an enduring question. What matters most? The work Sylvie does for women's rights or her relationship with her daughter? Some characters in this qu uh, quiet, important novel would choose one over the other. Sylvie refuses to believe that she has only one path in her life, or that any woman does, the three women will eventually show each other the way forward. Spoiler alert, progress is slow, painful, and it takes a lot of hard work. And sometimes it isn't enough. Sometimes the court's majority thwarts the will of the majority of the people. Sometimes frustration can grow into rage, violence, or simply obstruction. Sometimes an iconic justice makes mistakes, even about when to retire. But the majority reminds us that individual motivations don't always line up neatly with collective needs, and that a political machine counts for nothing if it doesn't put people first. And that was The One Versus the Many by Bethan Patrick from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, July 6, 2023. Patrick is a freelance critic, podcaster, and author of the memoir Life B. That book is called The Majority by Elizabeth L. Silver from Riverhead Publishing, 384 pages, cost $28. All right, now here is something from a website called usmagazine.com. And this is 
Jonah Hill's ex-girlfriend Sarah Brady accuses actor of emotional abuse. This is a warning by Miranda Seawak, July 8, 2023. Less than one year after Jonah Hill and Sarah Brady split, she spoke about the end of their relationship and alleged that the actor was emotionally abusive. This is a warning to all girls. If your partner is talking to you like this, make an exit plan. Brady, a 25-year-old pro surfer, wrote in her Instagram story on Friday, July 7, sharing screenshots of multiple text exchanges. Call me if you need an ear. In Brady's text messages, Hill39 allegedly asked her to remove any surfing photos from her Instagram with her ass in a thong. After Brady deleted all the posts, the You People star seemingly told her it was a good start, but she doesn't seem to get his point. But it's not my place to teach you. I've made my boundaries clear, Hill allegedly penned. You refuse to let go of some of them, and you've made that clear, and I hope it makes you happy. Us Weekly has reached out to Hill for comment. While Hill has not yet publicly addressed Brady's allegations, she argued that she had not been wearing a thong but a swimsuit in the first place. Brady further uh, claimed that his comments were made in an attempt to control her. She also noted that she complied with his request in an attempt to protect him from crippling anxiety. It's been a year of healing and growth uh, with the help of loved ones and doctors to get back to living my life without guilt, shame, and self-judgment for things as small as surfing in a swimsuit rather than a more conservative wetsuit, she wrote on Friday. I'm sure there's still much more healing from this abuse ahead of me. Hill and Brady took their romance public in August 2021 after he initially slid in, into her social media DMs. Brady also shared several of those messages on Friday, claiming that he sent her several flirty comments on her surf pics before they got together. Sharing this publicly now because keeping it to myself was causing more damage to my mental health than sharing, could, could it, sharing it could ever do, Brady added, claiming that she frequently took blame for his actions with the couple's therapist. Brady additionally alleged that Hill told her she lacked boundaries when it came to having friendships with other men, which she fervently denied in her social media thread. Neither the Don't Look Up star nor Brady have confirmed when they split, but he moved on with Olivia Millar in August 2022. News broke last month that Hill and Millar secretly welcomed their first child. While Hill and his partner have not further spoken about parenthood, Brady hoped that they welcomed a baby girl. I hope my ex has a daughter. Maybe she'll turn into a real feminist, Brady wrote, because the fact that he calls himself a feminist now is laughable. If I could have one wish for him, it would be that he's surrounded by feminist men who can hold him accountable to grow in the ways he has expressed he wants to. The law school student added, I think fame can put people in an echo chamber of viewpoints which can enable emotionally abusive behavior. Brady concluded that an emotionally abusive partner doesn't mean they're a terrible person and that it often stems from their own trauma. At the same time, it doesn't mean it's okay, she said. That was Jonah Hill's ex-girlfriend Sarah Brady accuses actor of emotional abuse. This is a warning by Miranda Seawak from usmagazine.com, July 8, 2023. Okay, now we're going to go back to the Jewish Journal for June 16th through the 22nd. Uh, and continuing with the cover story section, 
with uh, Welcome to Our Inaugural Youth Issue, which was curated by Tabby Raphael. And we continue with this story, Meeting the President and Making a Commitment to Give Back by Anderson Traugott. Anderson Traugott, age eight, as interviewed by her mother, I am a voter created creator and I'm a voter creator and co-founder, Mandana Dayani. Mandana Dayani Anderson, could you please introduce yourself and share a little about who you are? Andy Traugott. Hi, my name is Anderson and my nickname is Andy. I am almost nine years old and I am going to the fourth grade in the fall. I have one young younger sister named Miller. She is five years old. My closest friends' names, not family, are Peyton, Lou, Adley, Alexa, Ryan, Aitana, Sunny, Rachel, and so many more. I am Jewish. I have a dog named Jack Bauer. I live in Los Angeles. I love to write. I want to be president. Mandana, what is your favorite thing about Judaism? Andy, well, no matter what people have done to us, we always find the good in people. People have hurt us in so many ways, and we have always powered through it. We are unstoppable. We are powerful. I also love Shabbat dinner and my grandmother's cooking. She makes the best tadig, crispy Persian rice in the world. Mandana, you have come with me to voter registration events since you were four and have been involved in activism and volunteering for most of your childhood. Why do you believe that giving back to your community and activism are important? Andy, because people have fought for my rights so that I could go to school so that I could follow my dreams and make my life a good and happy place. In a community, we push each other up so that we can all do what we want in life. And in so many other places in the world, women and Jews don't, uh, don't, don't have the same rights as me and other people in America do. So when I, became a, when I become an adult, I'm going to try to fight for other people's rights. My biggest dream is that everybody in the world can have the same rights. Mandana. In December, you and I had the opportunity to attend the White House Hanukkah party with our friends, Noah Tishby and his son Ari. During the event, President Biden gave an amazing speech about the growing threats of anti-Semitism and invited you and Ari to join him on stage. We were able to ask him a question and share a special moment. Can you share what your experience was like meeting and speaking with the president? Andy, after President Biden invited me up on stage, he said some beautiful words. When he was done, he came to shake my hand and mine and Ari's hands. He shook Ari's first and then mine. And when he came to shake my hand, I said, I have a question. I want to be president. How do you become president? Then President Biden asked to turn uh, the microphone on again and repeated my question to everyone there. Then the president said, when you decide you want to become president, you don't do it to become president. You do it so you can make a difference and for the people you care about, and the people you want to help. Who are those people? I, I said, you, 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 and pointed to the crowd. Everyone started laughing. It was a fun night. Mandana. The following day, the president shared a video of both conversing on his social, of you, of you both conversing on his social media. How did that make you feel? Andy, right there, something changed my whole perspective of life. I felt amazing. I felt a burst of excitement, like I could do anything I wanted. If President Biden believes in me, then I better believe in myself. Mandana, Tikkun Olam and Tzedakah are an important part of Judaism. How do you envision yourself continuing to make a difference and giving back to the community as you grow older 
and become an adult. Andy, I want to dedicate my life to fighting for other people's rights by protesting, organizing groups of people to come together and stand up for what's right. I want to be an author. I want to write a children's book called I Got This. It's going to be about a little girl who wants to save the world and be a superhero. And an adult book called We Have a Voice That Deserves to Be Heard. It would teach uh, adults how to stand up for what's right. My gut says that one day we will live in a world where we are all equal. Where we can be ourselves and who we are. Because if you can't be yourself, then what's the point? Mandana, what are your hopes and aspirations for the future? What do you wish for personally or for the world around you? Andy, I hope we can live in a world where everyone has the same rights and is equal. I hope that we can all power through all the bad things in life. Each of us is made exactly how we are supposed to be to be made because God made us. Don't forget, we all have a voice that deserves to be heard. That was meeting the president and making a commitment to give back by Anderson Traugott. Anderson Andy Traugott lives in Los Angeles and is a rising fourth grader. All right, and this next one is called Bursting the Bubble by Tamar Scheinfeld. Living in the Jewish bubble has been a defining aspect of my life, shaping my experiences, relationships, and worldview. Surrounded by a close-knit community, immersed in Jewish traditions, and attending uh, schools where Judaism is interwoven into every facet of education, I have thrived within the comforting embrace of this unique environment. However, as, a college, admission, as college admissions approach, a wave of real, realization washes over me. Soon, I will be stepping into the real world, and my Jewish bubble life as I know it will come to an end. From my perspective, the Jewish bubble has been a nurturing cocoon, offering a sense of security and belonging. Interacting with fellow Jews, celebrating Jewish holidays, and engaging in discussions steeped in Jewish history and values have been the fabric of my everyday life. It is within this bubble that I have found the community that extends beyond mere acquaintanceship, forming bonds that transcend time and distance. As the prospect of leaving the Jewish bubble looms, a mixture of excitement and trepidation engulfs me. While I look forward to the opportunities that lie ahead in the wider world, I also grapple with the challenges of navigating terra incognita. The college experience promises encounters with people from diverse backgrounds, cultures, and beliefs. A departure from the relative homogeneity of the Jewish bubble, it will require me to step outside my comfort zone, engage in dialogue, and encounter the unfamiliar. Preserving my Jewish identity in the face of this changing landscape becomes a, a paramount concern. I understand that being a minority voice amidst a cultural tapestry of college life may present unique challenges, yet it also offers a chance to share my Jewish heritage with others. By seeking out Jewish organizations connected with Hillel divisions and participating in multicultural and interfaith dialogues, I can bridge the gap between my Jewish identity and the wider college community. In doing so, I contribute to the mosaic of diversity while remaining rooted in my own cultural and religious heritage. Leaving the Jewish bubble does not mean abandoning the values and teachings that have guided me thus far. Rather, it presents an opportunity to carry those principles into the wider world where they can resonate beyond the confines of a specific community. The Jewish bubble has instilled in me 
a commitment to kindness, justice, compassion, and tikkun olam repairing the world. As I step into the world beyond, I can integrate these values into my interactions, championing causes I hold dear, and working towards creating a more just, loving, and caring society. When the transition, while the transition may evoke a sense of loss for the familiar rhythms of the Jewish bubble, it also holds the promise of personal growth and expanded horizons. As I prepare to embark on this transformative journey, I am reminded of the resilience and adaptability inherent in the Jewish spirit. The Jewish bubble has provided me with a solid foundation, equipped me, equipping me with the tools necessary to navigate the complexities of the wider world with courage, compassion, and caring. As college admissions draw nearer, I recognize that bursting the bubble is not a rupture, but a transformation, a progression from the known to the unknown, from the insular to the expansive. It is an, invi it is an invitation to engage, explore, evolve, and enact. As a venture into the world beyond, I carry with me the memories, teachings, and values cultivated within the Jewish bubble, embracing the possibilities, adventures, and opportunities that lie beyond its boundaries. It is a time to embark on a journey of self-discovery, to bridge divides, and to contribute my unique Jewish perspective to the rest of humanity. However, in the end, I can leave the Jewish bubble and enter the world beyond, but I can never but it can never and will never leave me. That was Bursting the Bubble by Tamar Scheinfeld. Tamar Scheinfeld is a rising senior at YULA Girls High School. This next one is called Why I Stay at the Dinner Table by Shoshana Hini Zlos. I'm not going to lie. I've always been a little nosy and curious to find out what adults are talking about. I used to try to not fall asleep in my bed at night just to overhear what my mom and dad would discuss after they thought my sister and I were fast asleep. What was happening? Who was involved? Was there a surprise? I had to know. By the time I was 10 years old, I had lost interest in adult conversation, especially since they revolved around politics, people I didn't know, and or topics I didn't care for. In fact, after most meals that, uh, that we ate as a family, I could not wait to be excused. I would scarf down my mom's delicious food, barely give any details about my day, and would request to leave as soon as I finished the blessings after the meals. I had better things to do, read, do my homework, sometimes draw, or often just do nothing at all. I had found talking to adults, even my own parents, to be uneventful and even a little boring. I mean, how much could I say about my day at school? Most of what I did in my school was sit down and listen to adults. Home was where I could wind down, flop down, and I just needed to be left alone. I was tired. Even at the two Shabbat meals, Friday dinner and Saturday lunch, which are always the highlight in our household, with, uh, with my mom's amazing cooking, guests like family and close friends, and lots of treats and soda, I found myself casually sneaking away from the crowd as soon as I devoured my appetizers and main course. Obviously, I showed up again for dessert, but somewhere in between as I tried to be incognito. I would try, I would lock my eyes with mom, who always begged for a hug or a snuggle, anything, even offering to keep the keep me hostage on her lap just to keep me around the table and in uh, in between courses, but I kept slipping away. Then COVID nineteen happened, and all of a sudden we found ourselves with no one to host, not even our grandparents. My mom was devastated. 
who would compliment her on her potato boricas, homemade fried eggplant, and a jalapeno dip. At the dinner table, our parents stopped asking us about our day because we were sitting next to us. The, they were sitting next to us the whole day. In fact, at the beginning of the lockdown, my parents appeared to avoid us after dealing with a long day of Zoom learning and chasing after us to sit down and focus. If they had the Hosela bandwidth in person to sit with us, they barely made eye contact. They were too preoccupied with the printer paper being being out worksheets to print, and whose turn it was to Lysol. I use that as a verb, the whole house again. Help, I thought. My sister and I were no longer the focus of the conversation. My mother and father were foaming at the mouth from fatigue, sometimes offering us milk and cereal for dinner, clearly violating the subpartic code of toiling over one's children with individualized intricate meals for 120 years. My companions were my youngest sister, our dog, and our four birds, none of whom had any interest in my day at all. As COVID-19 slowly progressed, my parents gave up on worksheets, videos, and fake PE physical education classes at home, and instead, something amazing happened. They started to sit with us again at meals, telling funny stories and sharing cute animal videos, every, even offering to play card games at the table. I started to love the attention, the attention I received while we ate. I wanted to stay at my seat because it felt natural and, above all, it was surprisingly fun. I was the one asking my parents tons of questions and even playing random games uh, we invented like Wheels, Wheel of WhatsApp, where we would video call a random contact in our parents' phones just to say hi. Soon I stopped asking to be excused from the table. Fast forward to today. I am a teen and I still choose to linger around the dining table even though I have to juggle assignments and tests for, for my demanding classes. Thank God my mom and dad have guests again. The adults are often surprised that my sister and I like to hang around and actually talk to them. We are not allowed to have any devices while we eat during the, uh, during the week, and Shabbat restrictions help us to remove ourselves from all electronics once a week so we have less distractions. I still devour my mom's amazing gourmet sabzi stew, but I listen to the funny stories be in between bites. I love hearing about Torah, the beautiful acts of kindness people do for one another, updates about politics, and awful dad jokes. I pay attention now and get to see my parents in a different light, not just as the people who are obsessed with my sister and I. They engage with others as friends, siblings, and even aunties and uncles. I receive plenty of attention and praise from the guests just for staying in my chair and making eye contact. I guess my generation does not always connect this way, and the adults are pleasantly surprised when we seem to be interested in conversation, even if we're not always contributing to what's being said. There are plenty of conversations that I am not allowed to hear, but at the dinner table, I get to be the observer and the participant, and that's perfect for me. That's Why I Stay at the Dinner Table by Shoshana Hini Zloss. So Shoshana Hini Sloss is a rising 8th grader at Yeshiva Day School in Los Angeles. This next one is called Judaism and Two Iconic Sports by Elijah Gedanian. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, soccer is the world's most popular team sport. In basketball, there are five players that pass and dribble the ball while the other players try to stop the others from shooting the ball into their basket. In soccer, 
People can only use their legs, feet, and head to move the ball. Players try to kick the ball into the other team's net while defending their own. In my opinion, soccer is better than basketball because it is more popular, and it also has an ultimate international comp competition, the World Cup. Also, people can play in more places and conditions because players only need a, a ball and do not need a hoop. There is debate about which sport is better, and some may also wonder which sport uh, better upholds Jewish values. In soccer, there are 11 players and usually more than 10 substitutes. The referees can give, you, give out yellow and red flags. The yellow cards are for tripping other players and for complaining excessively to the referees. Respect is of big value with Judaism, and in this sport, players must respect the referees or there will be a serious consequence. There are also goalies to protect each goal, and they can use their hands. If at the end of the 90-minute game the score is tied, there is a penalty shootout of five penalty kicks. Hard work is another big value in Judaism, and in soccer games, the players have to be patient to make a single goal. Consider basketball. The players can take no more than two and a half steps when they aren't dribbling the ball. If a person is shooting the ball and their defender hits their hand or goes in their landing space, that's a foul. A technical foul is for unsportsmanlike con uh, tactics, like disrespecting officials, which also upholds the Jewish value of respect. In baseball, the three-point shot has been getting more popular recently. Ba uh, players are practicing, are practicing the shot more and more and teams are scoring more with it. In basketball, the Jewish value of practice is also key. But in this sport, they don't need as much patience for shots because more are made in one game. Even though basketball and soccer are both great sports, soccer is better than basketball because it is more popular, it has an ultimate competition, and people can play in more, in more places. More people play soccer than basketball. Additionally, the World Cup has more viewers and players than the NBA Finals. Soccer is so popular that almost every country in the world calls it football. Furthermore, soccer upholds the Jewish values of sportsmanship at a high, higher level. After receiving two yellow cards in, diff, in, different soccer, in, in different soccer matches, players are banned from playing in the next match. However, in basketball, after receiving 16 unsportsmanlike technical fouls, players are suspended for, from the next game. In conclusion, soccer is better than basketball because it is much more popular and also better for upholding certain Jewish values. That was Judaism and Two Iconic Sports by Elijah Gedanian. Elijah Gedanian is a fifth grader who enjoys playing both basketball and soccer. He originally wrote this topic as part of a school assignment to write a persuasive essay. Alright, this next one is called The Cantor and Me by B. Trevis. There is no mitzvah too small. Even one kind word can make a difference. I am a nine-year-old from Mercer Island, Washington. My family and I got, uh, go to a Herzl near Tamid Synagogue for Friday night Shabbat services. My favorite time of the week is when I got to sing with my cantor. He's always looking, he always looks at me during Kabbalat Shabbat, and I especially enjoy when he points to me during Romemu. Being Jewish is so much more than going to synagogue. It's also about doing as many mitzvahs as I can. Since I am nine years old, I can do a lot of mitzvahs with my family, 
and so many people do mitzvahs for me. Our cantor always uh, let the children go on the bima for vishamru. Our kids' night Shabbat, on kids' night Shabbat, he let me start the barku with him. This is a mitzvah because it is an act of kindness to give children a chance to lead a prayer. He made us feel welcome by coming over to us and saying Shabbat Shalom at the end of the service. These little mitzvahs have made me feel confident and happy. When our cantor got really sick, everyone wanted to help. I also wanted to help. I made cards and went with my mom to bring some food. When I learned that a mitzvah can be very small, just like bringing paper plates for Passover. We felt more like a community because everyone wanted to pitch in and help and help however they could. This is because he did so many mitzvahs for everyone. His kindness was like a boomerang. I thought that all of these mitzvahs would bring a miracle. I don't even want to say what happened because this is too, that is too painful. I don't understand why he is in heaven stringing with the angels instead of singing with us in shul. I feel sad and overwhelmed. I miss him. I am crying a lot. This means that a mitzvah cannot save someone's life, but it's how we get through sadness together and honor those who have done so much for us. I still think that doing mitzvahs are important because it makes me feel good inside, and I hope it helps others feel cared for. This is one of the hardest experiences of my life, and I don't know how I'm going to get through this and feel happy again, especially in shul. Maybe doing more mitzvahs, I will find a way to be happy again, and by singing his melodies, I will feel connected to him always. Dear Cantor Curlin, I love you and miss you so much. You feel like family to me. Love, B. That was The Cantor and Me by B. Travis. B. Travis is a fourth grader at Northwood Elementary School on Mercer Island. She enjoys helping her family get ready for holidays and most recently wrote her own Passover Seder skit, which she performed with her friends at our family Seder. She enjoys making challah and learning modern and biblical Hebrew at home. B also loves going for long runs, biking, swimming, going to camp, and spending time with friends. Right, this next one is called The Clubhouse by Jolene Zachary. Have you heard of The Clubhouse, a Jewish home in Los Angeles? The Clubhouse is an after-school program for disabled kids. The Clubhouse program benefits not only kids with disabilities, but also their families. Also, the clubhouse promotes inclusion so everyone feels more comfortable. Oftentimes, people treat disabled children with discrimination. Discrimination is problematic because disabled people do not feel as confident. For example, some places refuse to offer ramps for people with physical disabilities. As a result, disabled people don't have access to travel. The clubhouse is brilliant. No one discriminates against the kids. The clubhouse invites all the Jewish uh, schools to come and be a part of the clubhouse's message. Some of the schools are at Maimonides Academy, Hillel, and Yavna Hebrew, Hebrew Academy, and other schools. One exciting clubhouse event happened on Sunday, June 4th. There was a moon bounce park, puppy party, horseback riding opportunities, and so many more enjoyable activities. The clubhouse, the clubhouse helps a lot of people. A lot of kids with disabilities go there. It is very popular. It is really kind of, uh, to people to come to the clubhouse to help out uh, because it, it helps a lot of kids. Have you ever come to the clubhouse to hang out? The clubhouse gives kids with disabilities confidence to be themselves, which is brilliant. That was The Clubhouse by Jolene Zachary. 
Jolene Zachary is a rising 6th grader at Jindy Maimonides Academy. And this next one is called Thank You Clubhouse by Libby, last name withheld upon request. Here at Clubhouse, we have activities and we have birthdays. On Sunday, we have dogs. One time we had duct tape with a teacher and we have fun on Monday when it's aer aerobics. Tuesdays, it's scrapbooking. Wednesdays, it's dancing. On Thursday, it's holla baking. We sometimes go outside and play ball and chill with our buddies, and we had a mock wedding, and two kids got to be a hazon, groom, and a kala, bride. We had so much fun, and we had a family fun day on Sunday, June 4. Uncle Moshi was there, and it was so much fun. At the holla bake, they bring toppings, and it's sorted by base Yaakov girls. Sometimes it's someone else that does it, and she brings chocolate chips, caramel chips, sprinkles, and many more, and she brings pans, and we get to decorate however we like. On Sundays, we have dogs that are puppies, and we get to hold them, and it's a fun activity. For aerobics, base Yaakov girls come, and they make up dances, and we get to dance with them. Sometimes we make up our moves dancing with a dance. It's fun, and we can request our own songs, and the teacher give us an opportunity to do so. Doing Clubhouse is so much fun, and the directors are really nice. They have an amazing gift that they can give to us. It's been two years that I have done Clubhouse, and I love it. Thank you for giving me the chance to give back. On <clears throat> Lag the Omir, we went to Link Seminary, where we did a marshmallows and chocolate bonfire. Then we roasted marshmallows. One time we had a concert and it was so much fun. At the end of the day, we have a kumtsit musical gathering, and we go on the bus. We have whole hamawed trips to Nasberry Farm, and everyone enjoyed it. That was Thank You Clubhouse by Libby, last name withheld upon request. Libby is a clubhouse participant with Down Syndrome. She attends clubhouse every day and helps out with everything. This next one is called It's Not a Joke by Rebecca Davidson. This article contains mentions of suicide, self-harm, depression, and various mental health issues. I swear if I don't get an A on that test, I'm going to kill myself. If my parents ask me about my essay again, I'm going to slit my wrists. Wrist check, wrist check. This class will be my 13th reason why. These are all so-called harmless statements I have heard from my peers. And when someone hears these words and expresses concern, the young person often responds dismissively with, Calm down, I was just joking. But it's not a joke. Mental health challenges, including suicide and depression, are very real. Mental health is something that approximately 1 in 3 teens struggles with by the time they reach 18. Mental health is something that not only needs to be talked about, but also needs to be less stigmatized. This is why I want to write an article about the importance of taking mental health challenges in teens seriously. If you don't know me, I like to do things as best as I can when I learned that the Jewish Journal was creating its first Our Youth issue. I knew what I wanted, I wanted to write about mental health. I immediately created a short survey, 14 questions about mental health support for teens in schools across the U.S., and I sent it to about 100 teens on social media. I don't know most of these kids personally, but I wanted to share the results with you. I received 41 responses from kids between the ages of 13 and 18 across the U.S. 80% of them attend public schools, and the other 20% attend private schools. 
Mental health was talked about in 73% of the schools. 90% of the kids reported that mental health was stigmatized and thought that schools could offer more support. This is important because, unfortunately, suicide is the second leading cause of death among people between 15 and 24 in the U.S., according to an article published by UCLAHealth.org on February 23, 2023. Clearly, this is an important issue and apparently one that impacts a lot of people. Even if you don't think you know someone struggling with mental health, you can do something to help. Reach out to kids or teens and young adults you know, not because they look depressed, but because you can never tell when someone is suffering. A lot of teens are afraid to get help because mental health is not talked about in their everyday life, and that can even include at school. I was talking to some friends, all that, all at different schools, and a lot of them said that mental health is talked about in their schools, but it is not taken seriously by the school or students. Kids are teased if they go on, go if they go to those counselor, go to the counselor referred to as one of those kids. Unfortunately, this is the reality in a lot of schools, even Jewish schools. Even when schools offer counseling support, it is often a mixed experience. The student has someone to go to, but that student is seen as different and weird. They might be seen as using it to get out of class or to only have someone to talk to about random things. I read an article from the Jewish National Fund, which is an organization that has served people of all faiths in Chicago, Israel, and across the globe. They are inspired by Jewish values, committed to eradicating hunger, isolation, and inequities, and uplifting all people to find health, harmony, unity, prosperity, and peace www.juf.org news. A few things from that article about mental health stood out, such as serious depression and mental illness are not moral failures. They should not be stigmatized. These are illnesses and can be dangerous if not treated. And in Judaism, it is a mitzvah to treat illness and take care of ourselves. Also, I read that, and you shall greatly guard your lives, Deuteronomy 4.15, is a commandment of the Torah. Thus, it is a mitzvah to go to the doctor to attend to, uh, to ailments. This is not only true of physical illness, but also of mental illness. Mental health is something that needs to be talked about more and more with compassion, understanding, and support so it gets destigmatized. This can help the people who are struggling get the help they deserve. A lot of the, there are a lot of things you can do, but the most important one is to know that, a mental, that mental health is very real, no it is not a joke. That was It's Not a Joke by Rebecca Davidson. Rebecca Davidson is a rising ninth grader at Harkham Gown Academy. She's 14 years old and is very passionate about mental health issues. This next one is called Has Said So Much Better Than Scrolling Social Media by David Garandash. Last summer, I had the opportunity to participate in an incredible project that taught me so much about myself and the importance of Has Said acts of kindness. My older brother, Josh, and his friends organized an event where they surprised their math teacher at YULA Boys High School with a car. This was a big deal because their teacher commuted from Santa Clarita using scooters and public transportation, which took him four hours round trip. When I first heard about this project, I knew I wanted to be a part of it because I knew it would bring joy to the community and a person who deserved it. I went to different restaurants around town asking for gift cards to raffle off. I've always been very outgoing and knew that this would be the perfect way for me to get involved. 
I ended up collecting very generous donations from La Burger Bar, Star Juice, Delice, Pizza Station, Jeff's, and UCLA. When I first approached restaurants, I didn't know how they would react, but I knew that the worst thing that they could say was no. Even still, I felt a little nervous as I went to ask them, but I knew that this was a, for a good cause and that these businesses would hopefully see this. When I asked for donations, I was so pleasantly surprised that most said yes. I was proud of myself for taking the risk and grateful for the restaurant's commitment to their community. This taught me the importance of Hesed and getting outside of my comfort zone for my community. As I asked more restaurants and received more donations, my confidence grew and I became more relaxed and better at asking. This taught me a very important lesson about Hesed. The more you do it, the easier and more natural it becomes. I also realized how important it is to be part of a community that shares your values. The way that these restaurants and businesses responded taught me that they also believe in the importance of Sedaka. When an entire community gets behind a cause, it can have an incredible impact on an individual's life. It also gave me more appreciation for what my man, Dapna, is doing at the Change Reaction. This philanthropic organization helps people who are going through a rough time. The Change Reaction was essential to this project by matching donations up to $10,000. Their pledge motivated me by making me feel that the goal was achievable. It also made me feel even more supported and empowered. This experience made me realize that doing an act of chesed isn't just about improving the lives of others. It also makes you feel happy and proud. Over the past year, I have encountered many opportunities to do acts of chesed, but not all of them were large, life-changing gestures. It is important to remember that some art acts of chesed can be small, and that's okay, because the point of chesed isn't to get on the news. The main idea of chesed is to strengthen the relationship that you have with Hashem by helping others. Whether on the basketball court or on the street, you can always act in a way that embodies chesed. In my experience, Hesed can be as simple as picking up someone from the op uh, opposing team when they fall, or being respectful when you win or lose the game, which doesn't even require you to take much action. In a world where social media is becoming a larger part of all of our lives, Hesed is even more important. Social media encourages narcissism by making you feel that you're at the center of the universe. This may trick you into seeking validation from strangers instead of Hashem. Hased is the best way to break out of this imaginary world by experiencing the feeling you get from doing something that contributes to your community. I promise that it will make you feel a lot better than just scrolling on social media. I challenge all of the people reading this, especially my fellow teenagers, to prioritize acts of kindness and find small ways to make Hased a part of your daily life. This way, we can make the ultimate Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name, and act in a way that makes Hashem proud. Our community will benefit enormously from this way of thinking and acting. That was Hesed, So Much Better Than Scrolling Social Media by David Gerendash. David Gerendash is a graduating 8th grader at Harkham Hillel Hebrew Academy. To see his Hesed in action, please watch the Dude uh, Be Nice video, which documents the fundraiser at Students Surprise Awesome uh, Teacher with New Ride. And this next one is called Embracing Israel, a High School Perspective by Aviv Pilipski. 
My name is Avi. My dad is Israeli, and I was born in the U.S. I am a high schooler, and I love Israel. As an introduction to an Israeli friend, I would consider this as mediocre insight as to who I am and what I believe. As an introduction of myself to someone I have never met before, well, I think we can all agree it's not exactly the most sociable conversation starter. It's no secret that in coming to terms with any identity, especially as a teenager, there are inherent ups and downs. Some might feel ashamed of the differences between their ethically uh, ethically tied or religiously religious practices at home and that of American society. Others might feel ashamed of a language barrier or their family's ability to comfort to conform in social situations. In regard to navigating the Israeli narrative in America, I feel that it is one of the more difficult paths as not only does having Israeli heritage check all the boxes above, but it manifests into something that I have come to know as the inside-outside dichotomy. Essentially, feeling of being caught between societal respectability and pride in one's culture, which manifests in the playing of distinct roles in distinct settings, including the coward. This personality trait unfortunately manifests itself in the majority of settings, including conversations with teachers and or non-Jewish peers, social outings, and in the presence of people I, I deem respectable. As the coward, I find myself not willing to comment on Israel, leaving the conversation uh, that turn that leaving conversations that turn political, or even go uh, even going as far as to deny my affiliation in truly compromised situations. This reaction leaves me not only guilty but also ashamed that I am unable to defend a state that many of my family members call home and a place I adore. As much as I would like to be a voice of objectivity and even more generally fulfill my quest toward authenticity, sometimes I find myself unable to do so. Under the veil of conformity, I find myself relieved of the burden of deviating from the norm. With the weight of societal conformity on my shoulders, I find my inner suppressed uh, by my outer, hence the coward identity. The proud. As my outer becomes more and more dense, I find my inner further aching to shed the mask of conformity, and I find myself seeking liberation. Unfortunately, however, the part of me who seeks to educate, tear down false stereotypes, and take part in level-headed conversation rarely appears. Only at rallies or Shabbat dinners does this side of me appear. Only in the few pockets of society where the fear of potential social, uh, social isolation, potential isolation vanishes, do I feel comfortable enough to be outwardly proud of my identity and take a proper stance as someone who embraces Israel? There's no denying that being proud is hard. Taking a stance, and by extension, taking a social risk is truly difficult. And in the face of fear, this proud character remains my inner self. The unsure. In the age of social media, short-form content, and the climb of generative AIs in popularity, there is no denying that hate is one of the only voices that is consistently amplified. So often, I am exposed to unhindered, blatant misinformation not only about uh, Israel, but also the Jewish people at large. When scrolling innocently on social media, I am repeatedly led to believe that what I see is true, and this phenomenon fuels the skeptical side of me. The part of me that doubts and makes me question Israel's role on a larger global scale. At times, some of the more 
disconcerting and sinister content I consume even fuels hatred. However, most of the time I am led to discover that the majority of what I see is a complete construction and alteration of reality. Yet somehow, even after repeating the same pattern endlessly, this echo chamber of hate and anti-Israel rhetoric that the internet harbors still manages to convince me that that is who I, that is, it is I who is mistaken and I who should feel ashamed. Unfortunately, this inner versus outer vacillation is not an isolated experience, but one shared by many of my Israeli-American peers and friends. Embracing this narrative is one of challenge and choice, and in many cases, empathy and compassion rarely surface. I find that despite this, however, my inner perseveres, and no matter what, I try to be an agent of action in my community and love Israel. In most instances, <coughs> most instances the daily drive for one's inner to further break through the outer is enough, and I encourage you to do the same, regardless of what your authentic narrative might be. That was Embracing Israel, a High School Perspective by Aviv Pilipsky. Aviv Pilipsky is a rising junior at Harvard Westlake School and is a member of Harvard Westlake's Jewish Club and Jewish Family Alliance. And this next one is called Pizza and Prayers, How My Youth Group Changed Me by Ella Bailu. The first time I walked into a youth event at my synagogue, I was met with screaming, running elementary schoolers, overwhelmed and frazzled 20-something staff members, several steaming hot pizzas, and games like tic-tac-toe scrambled everywhere. It was a Saturday night, and we had just concluded Havdalah, and we were ready to embark on one of the, f the first events of the year, game night. As I found myself surrounded by tens of kids whose name I barely knew, my stomach filled with worry. But quickly, my distress was put to rest, put at rest as some girls in my Hebrew school class, whom I had only known for a few weeks, approached me and asked if I wanted to play Connect Four. Despite our lack of familiarity, these girls extended their friendship, making me feel instantly more welcome. What I came to learn after that night was that those girls' friendliness was not unique in a youth, youth group setting. Rather, it was the precedent. For Jews across the globe, Jewish youth organizations represent a source of community. Whether it be your first event or your 30th event, it is impossible not to feel the collective sense of friendship and pride in being Jewish. That sense of community has never faded, and it has kept me coming back for years. After leaving my Jewish day school after the third grade, there was a noticeable hole in my Jewish life. A hole comprised not of Jewish education, but of Jewish friendship and fun. While my parents enrolled me at the local Hebrew school, they took an additional step in ensuring the development of my Jewish life. They sent me synagogue, United Synagogue Youth Events. By showing up to those extra hours at my synagogue for food and activities, I learned more about my religion and culture while having fun with my friends. Together we screamed as one of us landed on Gimel while playing dreidel. We laughed as we watched our synagogue's rendition of the Passover story, and we said goodbye as we departed on separate buses at weekend Shabbatonim. As I grew older and I stopped attending weekly religious schools, my involvement in USY shifted. Youth group was now the only time and place in my life where I could be unapologetically and authentically Jewish. With that and my older age came a new confident person persona. 
and went from being the loud, energetic child that eagerly looked up at the older kids to being that seemingly confident and cooler, cool older kid. I began to lead prayers and games for 20 kids. I helped clean up after the traditional pizza dinners, and I approached anyone and everyone who looked like they wanted a friend. I was no longer the little girl sitting in the corner alone, waiting for someone to come over and talk to her. Similarly, as my involvement in USY shifted, my reasoning for being a USY member shifted as well. While at its core, USY has always been a place for Jewish joy. It simultaneously is also a place for Jewish development and growth. In 8th grade, I joined my chapter's USY board, which transformed my outlook on USY and leadership. Through my time on board, I have learned that the I've learned the ins and outs of event planning. I have learned how to lead tens of kids through icebreakers, and I've even learned how to lead a board of several teenagers. This fall, I will begin my second year as the president of my chapter's USY board. As I am ready to embark on another year in USY, I cannot help but reflect on what joy what joining the youth group has done for me. For, from the people I have met to the activities I have done to the skills I have learned, USY and Jewish youth events are invaluable to me. If I could go back to that little shy girl in the corner and tell her anything, it would be, stick with it, you will have a lot of fun. That was Pizza and Prayers, How My Youth Group Changed Me by Ella Bailu. Ella Bailu is a rising junior at West Ridge, West Ridge School in Pasadena the president of her synagogue's United Synagogue Youth Chapter. All right, we go on to this one, Gossamer Sunsets by Sophia Wong. I have lived 10,000 days like crumbling sandstones, but I am still locked from these cloud-fallen gates. My mouth agape as I fell to my knees every time I looked at the kissing fantasy, I saw broken promises to my loneliness. The sky, swollen with love, my gazing eye, Believe for a moment there weren't slashed memories, as if fragmented branches wouldn't shatter the sky, as if my halo wasn't just one big bullet hole, as if God's hand could remove my blood-marked glasses, as if these hands didn't hold prayers like the most delicate flame of falling stained roses. Hidden in shattered tears, I am welded with bullet holes, ingrained in these, tiny, uh, these grainy memories forever, etched in the pain of the thousand ghosts that follow us. I am alive, with closed eyes, I open myself to darkness. Falling in this divinity, I didn't know yet that the moon died each night to let the sun breathe. I didn't know yet the fluorescent wings of daylight would, would still be flapping, laughing. I didn't know yet those empty promises and grazing bullets would become the thorns that grew my rose. I am rising. I didn't know yet that ten thousand gossamer thoughts dreams, and lifetimes would wash over this planet like the breathless curse of waves in this never-ending sea of time. I didn't know yet. All I had was one breath. That was Gossamer Sunsets by Sophia Wong. Sophia Wong is a rising freshman at Harvard Westlake High School. And this next one is called Shalak, the uh, Ten Shadows of Doubt by Nelly Javahirian. I am a wanderer, but I am not lost. I am wandering because I am paying a cost. I am wandering because I heeded your cause. I am a wanderer, but it's all your fault. Your assembly was the twelve spies, 
twelve whom Moses chose from the twelve tribes. He sent you to explore and report of the land, and unbeknownst he sent you to misunderstand. So you brought back fruits larger than life, and you looked around as those giants died. But instead of recognizing God's glorious hand, you twisted the truth, and you twisted his plans. Milk and honey, you carefully replied, but mighty and fortified was still your cry. You argued for our, you argued for our fright with a passion so grand, maybe that's why we ceded your demand. We wailed and wailed throughout the night, but our ignited fear burnt a bit too bright. A divine pent-up rage sweeping through the camp as we blissfully fell further into misery's grasp. If it wasn't for Moses, we would have died. God wanted us gone for all of our lies. Our lack of faith would no longer stand, but he came forth and softened his command. Instead, we were banned from entering inside, uh, inside the Holy Land, the one before our eyes. A chance that perhaps one day our children will have, a chance you took away that I'll never get back. I am a wanderer, but I am not lost. I am wandering because I still pay this cost. I am wandering because I took heed to your cause. I am a wanderer, and it's all your fault. The, Merag the Merglims spread lies that not only sealed their own fates, but those of others as well. Refrain from choosing to believe in lies, even if they're louder than the truth. That was Shelah, Ten Shadows of Doubt by Nelly Javahirian. Nelly Javahirian, 17, is a rising senior at YULA Girls High School. This next one is called Understanding Humpty by Hank Schoen. I can't help but wonder why Humpty was sitting on a wall, and why they had to call him Dumpty, or just because he might have been lumpy, or clumsy, or shapeless. His body not quite defined. If he wobbled like an egg, if he spun like the earth at an angle not perfectly aligned, so what? What could be more cruel than the demand that we all conform to a single shape perfectly outlined? I see him now, I see him now on the playground yard, trying to stay out of the way so he won't get bullied, isolated, sitting alone on the wall while his classmates are fighting over a ball. An egg with its gushy insides and only a fragile shell to protect it is not meant to balance on a wall. And no one even noticed him fall. His body was broken, but his heart, that fragile thing, most of all. Those kingpins of the class, the popular kids who believe so foolishly in their own power, can't possibly help. Overweight, clumsy, wobbly, and broken, down in the dumps, dumpty, the power lies within him alone. Brave, persevering, Humpty. That was Understanding Humpty by Hank Schoen. And, that, and Hank Schoen is a soon-to-be senior at Harvard-Westlake High School. Let's conclude with some ads from the Jewish Journal. Like this one. This is your time. Ciela is your place. Assisted living, independent living, memory care. Discover a modern resort-style retirement community in Pacific Palisades. Opening summer 2023 and accepting reservations. Luxurious residences with designer finishes, floor-to-ceiling windows, and stunning views. Exceptional amenities, including a state-of-the-art vitality center with a hydrotherapy spa. Fresh seasonal cuisine featuring locally sourced produce for healthy living. Personalized care guided by licensed nurses. Visit us. Phone is 313, excuse me, 310-310-8218. Uh, website is livesiela, L-I-V-E-C-I-E-L-A dot com.
and we can throw in one more right about here. Keep up with what's happening in town. JewishJournal.com slash calendar. And folks, it looks like that will bring us to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.